Welcome to Women of the Wild, where education and opportunities are key. And friendships are made to last a lifetime. You think we got him? You think we got him? We got him. You said that yesterday. <laughs> Alright, Skylar, what do we got here? We got a... Nice looking red Yeah. Alicia Marie with Women of the Wild. We today have our guest speaker of Megan Deneen here from Michigan. Hi there, Megan. How are you doing? Hey, Felicia. I'm good. How are you? Very well. Um, so we are going to jump right into this. And I know you have a lot to talk about and we have so much to learn about you and what you do. Um, so as, as people are getting to know who you are, can you tell us a little bit of how you got started in like who you are in the outdoors and what you do? Yeah, definitely. So I, my name is Megan Deneen. I'm an airport wildlife biologist for USDA Wildlife Services. Um, it's Selfridge Air National Guard Base in Michigan. It's just north of Detroit. I have been a in the wildlife field working for eight years now, in, not including the time spent doing odd jobs throughout college, but I'll hit on that shortly. I am 29 years old and I have had the opportunity to work at seven airfields in five different countries. Wow. What countries have you been in? I can't say a handful of them, but undisclosed locations in Southwest Asia, working for the military, as well as Latvia, um, out one of the Baltic states out by Russia, um, and then a couple states within um, the United States, Michigan, and Alaska. That's incredible. And you were in Alaska for a, a period, like a stint for a while, weren't you? Yeah. Well, my first job right out of college was in Kotzebue, Alaska, which is on the Arctic Ocean. So it was a really cool experience. I bet that was absolutely just a stunning environment to, but also challenging to be in, huh? Oh yeah. Yeah. So what got you um, inspired in like a passion in the outdoors? Did you grow up with an outdoor background or an animal background? Yeah. So I grew up in a place called Hudson, Michigan. Um, and it was basically, it's a small town in the middle of Michigan, farming community. Both my grandparents are farmers, grew up in the country. So I've been an outdoorsy kid all my life, not necessarily by choice, but that was just the environment mm-hmm. I grew up in. And I, my dad took me hunting and fishing all growing up. He took me out hunting ever since I can remember And once I was of age, finally got to go to hunter safety and got my first deer when I was in middle school. Uh, My family also did a lot of camping and family vacations. So when I was, I think, eight years old, 
we did this big road trip from Michigan all the way out to Wyoming and hitting all bunch of the national parks. And ever since then, I knew I wanted to do something in the outdoors. Uh, my first experience of like seeing a bison in person just completely amazed me. And my mom had us write, me and my brother write essays on, you know, what we experienced on that particular trip. And I wrote in there that I wanted to be a park ranger. And at the time, you know, I had no differential between a park ranger or a DNR officer or a wildlife biologist, but I knew that this was the field that I wanted to go in. That's, that would be an incredible trip, especially to experience with your family. Um, I've made that trip frequent from Michigan over my sister used to live in Wyoming and Montana, Colorado. Um, so that experience alone, I can definitely see why it would have drove a passion to be a part of that. Um, and with your, with your new, with your passion and in your mission of what you do, you work for the USDA. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do with the, um, the aircrafts? Yeah. So when, uh, as an airport wildlife biologist, my job is to reduce the number of damaging wildlife strikes with aircraft. So what that means is when you are flying to, to and from any big city, general aviation, any airfield, there's always a risk of hitting birds or other wildlife um, when you take off. I mean, we share the skies with birds. This has been an issue since we started flying. The first documented bird strike was Orville Wright in like 1907, where he talked in his diary about hitting a red-winged blackbird. And we've been hitting birds ever since. So it's just, you know, we're, our airplanes are getting bigger. They're getting faster. We're in the air more often. So it's definitely a risk that's out there. Uh, don't be afraid to fly. Like the chances <laughs> of it being a damaging strike are really low. And, you know, to actually have something happen is extremely low. But, you know, it's not just about the aircraft. It's about this wildlife, too. I mean, when an aircraft hits a bird, you know, it can cause damage to the aircraft, but it's almost always fatal for the bird. Sure. And do you, with that, do the, is the management upon like hunting seasons depicted off of what you guys are seeing? Um, not so much. I mean, every airfield is a little different. So I'm at, in Selfridge guard base, which is kind of in the city. So depending on hunting season stuff, don't really reflect what's going on on my airfield. I mean, obviously you have your, your migration seasons and stuff will definitely affect what you're seeing on an airfield for sure. Um, but they don't really reflect the hunting seasons. You don't see like an influx of deer during deer season or anything like that. Well, I didn't, I didn't know if like, if you guys are seeing a big influx on when birds are uh, you know, compared to a hunting season, like if, if during the fall, during the migration, if you're having like this massive influx of what you're hitting, if, if those numbers just begin to skyrocket on you guys. Oh yeah. So every airfield is different. So when it comes to migration seasons, what's hatching, and it just really depends on the habitat that you have at your airfield. Mm-hmm. So when you have, you know, so at Selfridge, we're right next to Lake St. Clair. So waterfowl, you know, we see a lot of waterfowl because we have a lot of water around us. But yeah, so you'll, you'll see influxes with like migrations and stuff. Um, but it, it just all depends on where you're at and what kind of birds are migrating and when. So I know in Michigan, you know, we get turkey vultures in the summer, but my colleague down in Florida, she gets them in the winter because they overwinter down there. So it really just depends on where you're at and what's moving at that time. What is the craziest bird you've ever gotten off a plane? Um, I don't know if it was, so it was kind of crazy because of where I was at. 
uh, when I was up in Alaska, we were doing some wildlife surveys. We were just looking for birds and we saw this swallow that looked really strange. And so I took pictures of it and it flew away and it was on the airfield. And once I started looking into it more and doing a bunch of research, we realized it was a, oh my gosh, Eurasian swallow, which was really cool to see because it was thousands of miles from its, you know, homeland. So it must've got blown in or something like that. Did you guys ever get like ptarmigan or anything like that in Alaska? Yeah. So we did see, um, I saw one bird strike up in Alaska where a propeller plane was taking off in a small general aviation airfield and it did strike a bunch of ptarmigan. Um, so yeah, they're definitely around there. Right. Yeah. I I can only imagine that the the dynamic of species that you guys see are probably pretty diverse. Um, you know, as you're traveling through the different flyways, whether you're in the Midwest or the central, I've seen these flocks of geese and cranes and everything like that. And you know, there's the, the big iconic Hudson with all the Canada geese that, I mean, like you said, it's not something to be fearful to fly, but it's fantastic that you guys are doing that and doing the research. What type of um, backing happens when that you utilize? Like what information do you guys put into play when these happen? Yeah. When we have a bird strike, what often will happen is you have your maintenance crew will go out. And again, I would say majority of bird strikes are Mm -hmm. non-damaging. We call it snarge. So Mm -hmm. snarge is the remains of a bird on an aircraft. So when an air, when a bird hits a plane, just like when a bug hits your car, it kind of splats. And so oftentimes when we see that, we only see maybe some blood, some tissue, some feathers. So we'll do our best to collect what we can and we document, you know, time of day, where that aircraft was, where was it flying, and where did it hit on the aircraft? And we will collect all these samples and we send it to the Smithsonian Feather Lab, um, all the way in DC. So the, uh, the Smithsonian Feather Lab collects all these samples from all across the country. So then they have their machines and they have a variety of different ways and techniques and machines that'll help identify what kind of bird it was. So they can do anything from just comparing feathers to feathers that they have in their collection, or they do have a DNA analysis machine where they can actually just test to see what the DNA is. And so then we will get this information back. And this is really useful for us as managers because we have an idea of what we're hitting. Mm -hmm. So if we're getting a lot of, say, you know, say we're hitting a lot of waterfowl, then we know, hmm, wonder if we have a, a water problem somewhere on an air, airfield. Can we modify the habitat to make it less attractive for waterfowl? Or, hmm, we're hitting a lot of swallows. They must be really attracted to some sort of maybe food source or a shelter source near the airfield. Can we try to modify that? So it's really important that we learn at each airfield what we're hitting, where we're hitting it, when we're hitting it, so then we can help better manage that. You know, whether it's we can say, hey, pilots, maybe not fly during these times, or maybe not do practice flights during these times, and these times would be better, or simply, hey, these trees are really causing a lot of issues because they're housing a lot of different species. How about we just remove these trees off of the airfield and just completely remove that hazard altogether? Now, does it fall just within the airfields, or do all, like, routes get alternated based on where birds are getting hit? Do they keep track in the air where these happen? I mean, I'm sure most of the time you don't even know that they happen. You just know they happen between point A and point B. But does it ever, um, you know, disrupt the path that the planes have to take? We try to work with, like, surrounding communities and stuff and say, hey, like, this is a situation, like, these are the things that we're looking at. So I think it's like 
percent of birth strikes will happen below 1500 AGL, which is above ground level. Mm -hmm. And that's about five miles out of the airfield. So we'll take the airfield through this five mile radius and really see what kind of habitats are around there. If there's new developments, you know, hey, can we try to modify you want to, you know, you want to have a really pretty pond. Well, can we try not to have that? Or can we try to drain it or have some drainage or, you know, try to work with those surrounding communities. And mm -hmm. simply because a lot of pattern work that aircraft do are often within that five mile radius. And, you know, if you're at, again, every airfield is really different. So if you have an airfield that's right next to a you know, some sort of habitat that's really attractive, you know, I believe they're going to try to avoid it, especially if there's certain times of year. Um, I know at my base, sometimes we get this huge gall in flux. There's just this wall of galls that are hanging out on the river. So, you know, we just say, hey, let's, let's just take off the other direction for a few days until that population comes down a bit. Okay. So you just alter the path when needed. When we, when we can. Yeah. Sometimes okay. it's, you know, inevitable, but we try right. to. So do you ever get, I'm assuming some of these are private lands within that five mile radius. Do you ever get any kickback from the private landowners of not wanting to change, say that pond or that tree line or something? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it just depends on what they're looking at, what they're doing. Um, every situation is different. Oftentimes when you're like, Hey, it's a safety risk. They understand, but there's other times where they're like, you know, what's my little pond going to do to your whole airfield? I mean, that's just a, it's a situational basis. We just do what we can. It's like, okay, well, if you do want to have a pond there, well, here's some recommendations on how to keep geese from wanting to come in that. And, you know, we try to just work with these people um, so that we can both have the best of both worlds. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's completely understandable. And like you said, once you you bring up the safety concern aspect, it's it's hard not to want to help in a situation like that. I was just I can see some, you know, grumpy man, I, I've worked so hard to put this here and now all of a sudden you're making me change it if you ever get that type of kickback. Um, but it's the everything that you guys do with this wildlife management, you don't just stop at that though. You, you trap and you do things like that on the airfield as well, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a typical day to day, but good way to like really explain this. There's about there's four types of direct control that we do on an airfield. The first is habitat modification. So we'll look at the airfield as a whole and we see is there water, shelter, food, which of those three components are on the airfield and can we modify them? Can we try to make it less attractive for wildlife just to be simply in the area? Hmm. The second is going to be exclusion, so creating man-made barriers to make it more difficult for wildlife to be on the airfield. So, um, for example, you have an eight-foot fence, you know, around an airfield. That's because white-tailed deer can't jump over eight feet. Uh, mm -hmm. Just creating, you know, um, dig under or covering dig unders and stuff in fences, putting out bird spikes that just keep birds from wanting to perch on signs and stuff. You're just creating that man-made barrier. The third right, step is right. harassment. So harassment is going to be just making the place as undesirable as possible. So we shoot pyrotechnics at, um, at birds, which are like glorified bottle rockets. It's just really to scare <laughs> birds out of the area. Uh, we can use bird cannons, which are just propane cannons that make really loud noises and it scares the birds out of the area. We just make it a pretty scary place. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth, op um, fourth option is completely removal. So the big part of my position is raptor trapping and relocation. So we put out traps that are modified traps for owls, hawks, and falcons that we catch on the airfield. 
we put federal bans on them, and then we work with our state agencies to find you know suitable habitats for these different species to relocate them and release them, and basically tell them not to come back. <laughs> and then on top of, and at the very end, very last resort is going to be lethal control. So that is doing you know deer. Um, coyote removals and stuff like that. And, you know, at my base in particular, all the deer that we remove, we are able to donate that meat to charity. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, when you relocate these animals, how frequent do they actually come back? It depends. There's, there's been a lot of studies into it. So, you know, I could go really in depth with this, but it's not very often. Okay. You know, if a bird has its territory established, they are more likely to come back. But oftentimes they're juvenile birds because juvenile birds are the ones going to get caught. It's that red-tailed hawk that's trying to hunt for the first time. You know, it sees our trap. It's an easy target. It gets caught. We relocate it. Next time it's flying around my base, it's going to go, I remember what happened there last time. I'm not going back there. And they try to move on. Right. And then with the lethal, that's that's if like you have a deer coming across the, the airfield or something like that. That's when you would use the lethal force to remove them. Yeah, so it's within proximity of the airfield. It's definitely, uh, we don't want them there because when a deer strikes are really uncommon, but when they do happen, they're very expensive. Oh, I can imagine the damage that it could do. Um, mm-hmm. Now, is you said like coyotes, do you get issues with foxes and, and things like that? Do you have, is there management for the other critters, like the varmints and things like that that are coming in to you know, do they ever cause disrupt in aircraft as far as like maybe a raccoon getting into the underneath of a plane or or things like that? Do you deal with any of that? They can. We do have a pest management um, group on our airfield or our, at our base as well. And again, this goes right back to like every airfield is so different. Some mm-hmm. airfields, maybe they have woodchuck problems. Maybe they don't. Um, it, my base, you know, coyotes like to hang out. We have a lot of urban coyotes you know hanging around the suburbs and stuff so they definitely like to come out and hang out a bit um out in alaska i remember you know having muskrat running across the runway and having porcupines that i was catching often and with the porcupines you just catch them and relocate them but it, it was a lot of fun um so yeah that's the one the one thing i learned was every airfield is very similar that they have a tower they have runways they have taxiways but they are so vastly different when it comes to how we manage the wildlife there And I think that's what makes me enjoy this position so much is that it's such a big problem solving position. Something that might work in Alaska doesn't work in Michigan. It worked in Michigan, but it's not going to work in Latvia. Right. So it's just been, you know, a really cool ride of just seeing, you know, getting to come up with different solutions and stuff for every issue. Oh, I can imagine a position like that, keeping you on your toes and, and keeping that critical thinking always on point. Um, It's, it's really attractive and interesting to me how diverse the creatures are that you guys, even with the different divisions, the different species that you're going to encounter in a position that you have and having that live interaction of trapping or, or the lethal removal. Um, but being able to like trap them, relocate that, that has to be pretty rewarding to know that you just removed that animal from that cycle that you're not only protecting the plane and its passengers, but you're also protecting that creature. Um, I think that's a really awesome thing that like, I didn't know this was a thing until I had spoken with you and learned your story a bit. And it was, it was very intriguing to me how much you have that interaction on base um, with this wildlife and on average, how many 
how many animals do you think on a, like, whether it's daily, weekly, that you have that face-to-face interaction with these creatures? Oh, I would say daily. I get to work with wildlife every single day. You know, it gets a little slow, maybe in January, February, but I'm seeing wildlife every day. Trapping is all going to be dependent on, you know, what season it is. So right now it's spring migration. So we're starting to see, you know, raptors are starting to come back home and then they're going to kind of you'll get quiet for a little bit while they're nesting. And then late summer, you're going to have everybody migrating back. You're going to have a lot of juvenile birds that are trying to, you know, hunt for the first time again. And then my favorite are the snowy owls that come down to Michigan. And when a snowy owl comes here from the Arctic, they're looking for the closest thing to home that they can, which is a big, wide, open, flat space. So snowy owls love airfields. And so we, we get to work with those all winter. That's really, they're they're gorgeous creatures. So I bet that's incredible. Mm -hmm. So what with the USDA, how did you, like, how was your start to that? If somebody, if, if we had a female that wanted to get into a position like this, or even, you know, a different division or something like that, how do you, like, what degrees do you need? How do you go about doing that? Yeah, so I went to Michigan Tech University, which is up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I have a bachelor's degree in wildlife ecology and management. You basically just need any type of wildlife. You got the wildlife and fisheries. Um, Every college kind of calls it a little different. When I was at Tech, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't even know the airport work existed or wildlife services even existed. And I knew I wanted to do something outdoors. I knew I was in the right major but what was I going to do from there? And I had a professor telling me, they're like, just try to get experience because I'll be honest, I was not a straight A student. (laughs) Um, Not saying I struggled, but I definitely was not a good test taker. And so I just set out to try to get experience. And in the four years that I was at Michigan Tech, I ended up working nine different jobs. And doing that, especially when you're in college, is really awesome because you're going to learn what things you like and what things you really don't like. Like I learned for myself that I did not really like working in a lab and I liked being outside. I liked doing things with my hands and having something different every day. So big thing I always tell people is try to get experience where you can. And because seasonal jobs aren't going to last forever and you're going to learn a lot, whether it's, again, it doesn't necessarily have to be a good thing. It could also be like, wow, I never want to do that again. And at least, you know, that, cause it's better to learn that when you're in college doing seasonal work rather than going out to the workforce and then realizing, oh gosh, I'm in the full-time job now. And I hate this. Yeah. So. And I think, I mean, that mentality, I think it follows through on so many things. That's one of our big mottos with what we do here at women of the wild is if you don't know, try it because you don't know if you like it or not. And the least you're going to do is learn that you didn't like something. Um, but you never know, you could try it and you could absolutely fall in love with it. So like you said, being in a lab versus being out on the runway and being hands-on in it, everybody has their different quirks of what they like, what they don't like. And finding that out for yourself is, is really great. And now a short word from our sponsors. Hey everyone, Andy Lehman here from ACC Crappie Sticks. Just want to let you know about our crappie baits and jig heads. We have a wide selection of the hottest colors and big eye crappie jig heads in the most popular colors and sizes. Check them all out at acccrappiesticks.com. Thank you. 
Do you enjoy the great outdoors and hope to share that excitement with your kids? Now you can through Dr. Josh Farr's great collection of books. Share your love of nature while also teaching valuable life lessons on friendship and learning the alphabet with books like the ABCs of Hunting. Plus, the ABCs of Hunting workbook is the perfect learning tool to captivate young readers and create a foundation for your future hunter. Find out more about these and other books from Dr. Josh Farr at drjoshfarr.com. That's D-R-J-O-S-H-F-A-R-R.com. Well, you see, trappers are a special breed of people. We're dedicated, committed, and passionate about what we do and who we are. Each and every one of us has an intense desire to be the very best we can. So in a world of skinny jeans, man buns, and pumpkin spice lattes, sometimes you just have to stop, push back, and tell the world, that's not me. Whether you're from the far north or in the deep south and anywhere in between, Southern Snares can help you succeed at getting the job done and being who you are. Girls with Guns Clothing is a proud sponsor of Women of the Wilds podcast. If you are looking for hunting gear, be sure to check out our new fall collection, including the launch of our new Artemis Generation 2 lineup. With Girls with Guns, you know that our gear has been designed and field tested by women who actually hunt and wear this gear. We have an amazing team of women who contribute and share their ideas and extensive field testing so that our gear works for you in multiple hunting environments. We build our gear for women of all shapes and sizes, made by women for women. If you want to try out GWG, you can go to gwgclothing.com and use WILD15 for a discount off of your first order. We would also like you to check out Sawmill Creek Bait and Lures, RMC Custom Calls, Atlantic Coral Enterprise, Blast and Cast Guide Service, Epler Fur, Feather Moon Calls, Shangalaya Safaris, Shelly Emmer with Dirty Girl Guide Service, and Hunting Day Podcast. And now back to the podcast. What nine, what nine jobs did you have when you were in college? Oh gosh, I knew you were going to ask this. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. So I worked, I worked for the state. I worked for the DNR for a season. I worked in a soils lab. I worked for Isle Royal National Park, working for their, um, their research division for a little bit. Then I did some cultural work for them. Then I did some educational work for them. I did a lot of outreach with uh, some kids uh, working for the college, doing like they're called like family science nights. Oh gosh, what else did I do? I worked at a wildlife rehab. Um, I'd have to go back to my resume. It's been so long now. No, that's but it, yeah, it, it all just kind of led you to here. Yeah, and the big thing I always tell people too is network. And I know it's easier said than done. Reach out to professionals because they're more than most of the time they're more than willing to help you, mm-hmm. and they want to talk to you because they were all in this your shoes once upon a time too. And they knew how intimidating it was to talk to people. And I was in the wildlife society. I was an officer in my student chapter and I went to a conference. It was my senior year. And somebody talked about wildlife damage management with USDA wildlife services. And it was interesting to me because in college, I started fur trapping. I was, you know, getting my boots dirty with just trapping raccoons and learning, you know, the, the techniques and stuff of fur trapping. And I heard like, oh, wow, these people get to trap for a living. That sounds really interesting. 
And after he talked, you know, there was a little pause between speakers and I was just like, you know what, I'll just go say hi. And I walked up to this guy and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a wildlife major. It's my senior year. I already have some summer work lined up, but you know, what you talked about was really interesting. And he was ecstatic that I had spoke to him and he's like, why don't you come down to my state, the state office next time you're in the lower peninsula. And I was like, yeah, for sure. Month later I was in Lansing and I knocked on the guy's door. I was like, Hey, remember me? And he showed me around the shop. He introduced me to some of the, you know, his workers and stuff. And he sat me down in his office and he's like, Hey, I just got this email for seasonal jobs in Alaska here, I'll print it off for you if you're interested. And I took it with a smile on my face, but to be totally honest, I was like, I'm never moving to Alaska. That sounds awful. Like I was just, I was such a homebody. I've never, you know, moving to Michigan tech, I thought was going to be the biggest adventure of my life. Just being just in a different part of the state alone. And so I took it and it was like, okay, yep, I'll do this. And then I just decided one day, I was like, you know, I'll just give this guy a call. I'll just give this guy a call in Alaska. So I called him up and he's like, okay, well, you're still in college. You know, maybe we'll be able to find something for you. And he's like, how do you feel about just wildlife surveys? And I was like, that sounds great. I can do that. And so next thing I know, four months later, the day after I graduated, they flew me out to Anchorage and I got to train for a couple of days. They flew me out to Kotzebue, Alaska. And Kotzebue, Alaska is this remote village. It's on the Arctic Ocean. It's like 30 miles north of the Arctic Circle. The closest road system is over 500 miles away. Oh, wow. And I was petrified. I think if there's something for people to understand is that for you to go off and start adventuring and doing things, you're going to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. It's going to be scary. You're going to wish you were in your hometown. You're going to wish you had your friends. Because when I landed there and I looked around and I was like, I am very different from everybody here. Uh, Kotzebue is like 80% native. Right. And I was, I'm blonde hair, blue eyed. I stuck out and it scared me. And I remember my first day just calling my mom and just crying that I was like, I made this mistake. What am I going to do here? And, you know, her support has definitely pushed me through a lot of these experiences I've had. And, but you're not always going to have support too. Like, I'm really fortunate that I had a mom that was super supportive, but you're also going to have people who are going to tell you, you know, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you take that risk? But honestly, I would never change anything. Doing these risks and taking these opportunities like I have, have given me a life worth remembering. And I ended up thriving up there. I loved it. I really immersed myself in the culture. I learned about the Inupak people. They brought me into their homes. They showed me their traditional ways, traditional hunting. Uh, My third day up there, I went ice fishing and I was so scared to walk out on that ice because I was like, are you you guys sure? Because like, it's really wet on top. You know, are are you sure this is thick enough? Like this is, you know, it's kind of warm out. And they were like, no, no, it's fine. And they gave me this traditional fishing rod, kind of looks like a boomerang. And we dropped the spool in it and I kept pulling it up because I kept thinking I had a fish and they're like, no, no, you'll know. I was like, well, you know, I, you know, ice fished up in Houghton, like I ice fished in the UP, you know, usually when you feel that, it means there's a bite. They're like, oh no, you're in the ocean, honey. You're going to know. <laughs> sure enough, all of a sudden my arm just went straight down and I pulled up this massive fish, the biggest fish I'd ever seen through this hole. As I'm pulling it up, my line snaps. And it fell back into the 
hold and I, my heart sank and my adopted grandpa up there, I call him my adopted grandpa. He just, um, him and his wife just, they took me in. It was, they made it great. Anyway, he drops onto his stomach, reaches in this hole and pulls out this she fish. This she fish is like over three feet long. Oh my it God. Massive. And I was like, how did you like, I was mind blown. How do you know to just drop like that? He's like, honey, this ice is six feet thick. <laughs> Oh, wow. You weren't going through. That fish wasn't going anywhere. That thing was going to be suspended in that hole for a few seconds at least. Right. So I was able to catch my first she fish out there. And that was just the start of my many adventures in Kotzebue, Alaska. Um, you know, when you're in those kind of places and situations, you're going to be lonely at first. You know, it's going to be intimidating to be in these kind of new places. But just know that there's going to be other people like you. There's going to be people who left home. There's going to be people doing seasonal work. And there was a national park headquarters there. And they told me that there were going to be seasonal workers there. And I was like, okay, you know, I waited a couple of weeks and then I heard, you know, through the grapevine that these new seasonal workers from the mainland had come up. I walked into these headquarters and I saw this young girl. She had to be about my age and she was sitting at the front desk. I, I walked up to her. I was like, Hey, are you a seasonal worker? She's like, yeah. I was like, you want to be my friend? She's like, heck yeah. And she ended up being my best friend up there. And so like just putting yourself out there is definitely going to help you be more comfortable. Um, Sports are great. I brought my softball mitt up. I, you know, found out that they had a softball, like a co-ed league. And I simply just went to the ballpark when I heard that they had started the league. And I just walked up with my mitt to the first person I saw and was like, hey, I'm Megan. I'm new to the area. I'm only here for the summer looking for a softball team to join. And they welcomed me open arms. And I was so I was able to meet people that way. And so definitely put yourself out there. Definitely just experience humility a little bit. Just, you know, it sucks at first, but it's going to be worth it so much longer in the long run. I love that you have that, like, go get them personality. Because for me, I would have been like Alaska is like my dream, right? In that situation, though, I don't think I would have been able to approach people the way that you do. Um, oh, so I, I couldn't. Like, if you would have asked anybody in high school that I would be where I'm at now, they would have all laughed. I was so shy. And that's where it just, it's what I'm saying. It sucks when you are really shy and it's scary to talk to people. Sometimes you just got to just take a big swallow of something and walk yeah. Yeah. You just got to buck up and do it. And like for a softball team, you just be like, I want to do this. Uh, Somebody take me in or like, let's go ice fishing three days into that. And you're out ice fishing. It's the, the things that you've experienced through this career and like the journey through it to where you are now has to be just absolutely incredible. And like you said, to have those memories to take back with you and, and carry on with you and create more like do you think that the position that you're at in Selfridge is where you're going to stay for a long period? Or do you have your eyes set on traveling more and continuing that? Or have you already completed kind of all of what you wanted to do? You know, I don't know. And I'm okay with that. Sure. because I have learned that you just take opportunities as they come because you just never know. If you would have asked me when I was in high school, or even college, like, Hey, would you ever move to Alaska? I've been like, heck no. <laughs> and then when I was in Alaska, if you would have said, Hey, do you want to go work in some sand dunes with the military in a different country? I would have been like, heck no, that's scary. 
<laughs> and if you would have told me, hey, you're going to move back to Michigan, I would have been like, oh, heck no. Like, it's just, you just never know. And you just take the opportunities they come to you. Don't just sit and wait for something that you want because you don't know what you want, really. There's mm-hmm. things like if I would have had anything, I wanted to work with bison and moose and just large ungulates. I was like my goal. And, you know, I, you know, I got to work with moose a little bit in Alaska, but I get to work with birds and I hated birds in college. Like I never cared about them. Like they just didn't interest me. I had this ornithology professor who was amazing and his passion for birds just resonated so much. And it was after that semester, I was out walking around and also I was like, oh, hey, that's a magnolia warbler. Oh, hey, that's an oriole. Oh, hey, like also it was like, oh my gosh, I can recognize birds now. This is kind of cool. And, you know, if I saw that job opening and it was like, oh, you just get to work with birds all the time. I probably would have been like, heck no, but I just took it because you just, you never know. Right. And just taking those opportunities. So, you know, after I left Kotzebue, um, it's, it's wintertime in the wildlife field. You'll especially learn, especially early on that you're going to work a lot of seasonal jobs and wintertime is probably the hardest season to try to find work. And living in Kotzebue, I was able to make some like decent money and was like, you know what? I've got nothing to do. I want to go to Africa. I've always wanted to go to Africa. Like who doesn't want to go to Africa? And so I started looking at safaris and different, you know, tourism things. And then I realized there was, I saw this website on ecotourism and there was this um, program called Wildlife Act where they work with reserves in South Africa chasing or doing radio telemetry, chasing around the African wild dog specifically mm-hmm. and collecting data on it. And it was ecotourism. So you didn't have to have a background in it. And it was just a way to like, you know, it was a way for people to experience the back country of Africa, but also get to help with conservation. And when I looked at the prices and stuff, I couldn't rattle it off now, but I mean, it was either I'd go on a safari for a week or I could live in Africa for two months for almost the same price. Oh, wow. So that's what I did. I, you know, reached out to them. I applied, they accepted. And I got to go to South Africa for two months doing radio telemetry, specifically on the African wild dog. But then I got to, you know, we got to look for elephants and rhinos and cheetahs and leopards and just everything you could ever want out of a trip to South Africa. And then on top of it, you're getting to help with conservation and getting to really learn about, you know, how they do wildlife management in other countries yeah, and getting to also work with just people from around the world. I mean, I was the only American in my group and getting just to meet people from other countries and where these people are coming from and hearing their stories. Um, So, you know, volunteering you know, I obviously not everybody can just jump up to Africa to volunteer, but volunteering can get you so much. And it was a great resume boost. And going from Alaska to Africa gave me the resume boost I needed to get to go overseas with the military. Uh, Because they told me they're like, you know, at the time, they're like, you know, we don't need somebody that knows exactly how to do airport management. We need somebody that's really comfortable going into these kind of places. Mm -hmm. And I was able to prove that by just doing my own experiences um, but yeah, after Africa, I, I traveled back to Anchorage, Alaska and worked at the Anchorage International Airport, also being just a wildlife tech and getting to just do more hands-on. So the, when I was in Kotzebue, I specifically just did surveys. When I got to go to Anchorage, then I was doing much more of like that, you know, raptor trapping, harassment, getting to hang out on the airfield on a daily 
fantastic job. I mean, we had a work phone and every time it went off, it, my heart raced because it was like, Ooh, is it going to be a moose? Is it going to be a bear? Is it going to be a goose? Like you just, you just don't know. It right. was just so exciting because moose, I always tell people, if you go to Anchorage and you want to see a moose drive around the airport because there's parks and stuff just outside the airport that just house just dozens of moose. There's just everywhere. And moose are my favorite animal. Now, do they it's come like, through the fences and everything at the airports or do they not have fences there? They do have fences. Um, when they get on the airfield, often it's people accidentally let them on. You know, they they're doing going about their jobs. They open a gate and they don't really see the moose walk through the gate when, while they drive through. Uh, How do you not see a, that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> ask them, not me. That must be um, a big gate. <laughs> yeah. And then they just hang out just, you know, in the parking areas for your smaller aircraft and stuff. So they're just, they're around. They're in areas that are unfenced and they're areas that can, they're, when they're in the areas that are fenced off, it's pretty, it's not as common, I guess. Um, but when they're just in the area, I know we still try to get them to move out of the area because they are dangerous animals. So somebody that's just driving up to, you know, grab their Cessna and go for a quick ride and there's a moose at night next to it. You know, we just, we try to get them out of there just for the safety of, um, both parties involved. Right. Now with your, I'm going to loop back to Africa because I will tell you South Africa is one of my favorite places that I've ever been. Mm -hmm. Um, We're actually going back in August. We're taking a group of women with women of the wild um, on a safari there in Limpopo. With what you did there, was that towards aircraft or was that just, you said with the wild dogs, are those like the painted dogs? Yep. The painted dogs. Yep. Okay. Um, Nope. That was not with wildlife services. That was just me Googling places to volunteer. That's as simple as it is. I bet that was an incredible, I mean, South Africa is absolutely beautiful. Probably one of the most beautiful places that I've ever experienced, but like to be able to go do that and have that, like you said, that background and putting yourself in that situation. I think it's really neat that that's what you chose to do to go there and spend, you said two months. Yep. Gosh, that had to just be just a very cool adventure to be able to go chase those dogs around and, and you, you surveyed them. So are you counting like how many you're seeing or what is it that you were doing with that information? Mm -hmm. They were, um, so we're doing radio telemetry. So your dog pack would have at least one or two individuals that had one of the radio collars on it. Mm -hmm. So every morning we would go out and we would find the pack and see if they're hunting or not. Maybe they just finished their meal. Maybe they were on the hunt. We were going out like four or five in the morning and then we would follow this pack around and see what it ate. And then we would survey what they ate are all the individuals there because the painted dog is one of the most um, poached animals in Africa, but it's because of by poaching. So it's, they're not the target species. They're the bycatch. So right, right. a lot of people in South Africa that are poaching, they're looking for those antelope species. Mm-hmm. They're looking for food and stuff. You know, we're not looking at, we're not specifically talking about the rhino and elephant, and like the ivory tray. We're looking at just the local community that's looking to trap a couple impala, some nyalas or something. So they have snares out and often these dogs are chasing these prey species and they get caught up in the snares. Mm-hmm. So they're looking out and making sure is everybody in the pack still there? Is everybody healthy? What are they eating? And they specifically want to know what they're eating because Wildlife Act is trying to collect this data so that they can give it to other reserves and say, hey, we can tell you that if you put a pack of wild dogs in your reserve, they will eat X amount of 
prey a day because sometimes you know reserves can be apprehensive about bringing predators in because you know well, how much is that going to cost us how much prey do we need to have available mm-hmm. so they use this data to just help promote the painted dogs they're both helping the ones that are in their reserves you know keeping them safe on top of also hoping helping promote them as potential predator that they could add to other reserves as well to help build their populations in the wild yeah because their populations have plummeted and like you said with the poaching over there a lot of people when you say poaching the first thing that your mind goes to are the rhinos the elephants but the reality of it is is it's a third world country and most of the people there are just looking to survive so like you said the impalas the nialas you know that's that's the kind of stuff that people are over there poaching to the point of almost wiping everything out at you know at some point in time, the Gemsbach were wiped out in South Africa and Texas ranchers were actually who brought that population back. So the the history behind all of it with people here in the United States, I think they're very naive to of what poaching is and the dynamic of what it really affects. Like what you're saying with these dogs chasing prey and that's how they're ending up in these traps and that's how these populations are plummeting that it's very intriguing to me to hear that you did this. And it's honestly something that like, I could see myself doing like that. The painted dogs are something that I follow pretty closely over there. And I just, it's, that's a really neat thing to just be like, this is what I'm going to go do for a few months. I think it's really cool that you do that. Um, and then, so after South Africa, you said you went back to Anchorage Yep. and you dealt with moose. Did you, have you ever had any close encounters with moose? Yeah, I did make the news once. Um, the so news? There, was, there was a pair of moose that were fighting and I get a call that said, hey, there's two bold moose in the middle of rut. They're fighting and they're destroying an airfield fence. And so I was like, okay, that's interesting. So I went and checked it out and yeah, they were destroying an airfield fence because one moose was on one side of the fence and the other bull was on the other side of the fence. So they were hitting each other through this chain link fence. And these are massive animals. When they hit that fence, you could hear that barbed wire just ping, 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 ping off the top of it. They were just shifting this entire fence line with every blow to each other. And they had been at it for like an hour or so. Oh my goodness. You know, there was not much that I could do at the time to like, I mean, these guys are just raging bulls. So there's, there's not really a whole lot we can do. So I was just kind of more worried about the people around because, you know, people were wanting to get pictures. They're trying to get close. And it was like, guys, you got to get back. Like, just let them do their thing. Mm -hmm. Eventually, one of the bulls ended up getting tangled up in barbed wire. So that barbed wire lines that are run on the top of like a chain link fence, Mm -hmm. his antlers are getting wrapped in it. And every time you would hit that fence and pull back. He was pulling more of that barbed wire off to eventually he just got tired out and didn't want to hit that fence anymore because he was getting just tangled in this barbed wire. He started shaking his head. It had wrapped around his face, it wrapped around his body, and he tried to rub it off on everything. He was rubbing it off on bushes, and my favorite was this person sitting in a car trying to get pictures of this moose. And he walked right up to that car and just started rubbing his antlers full of barbed wire on this car. And I just, I just wish I could be a fly on that wall for that insurance claim. <laughs> just, you know, yeah, I had a moose of barbed wire, you know, to rub up against my car. How did you get um, the image a moose? So we ended up working with the state agency, the state department, and they came out with their tranquilizer guns 
and was able to uh, tranquilize the moose and bring him down. You know, I was like young 20s. I was like 21, 22 at the time. And I was like, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, like, give me a job. Like I, I just want to touch it. <laughs> yeah. I just like, just yeah. let me touch it. And so the guy, the biologist was like, oh yeah, here's the clippers. You can cut the, the barbed wire off. So I walk out to this moose and it's sleeping and I start clipping the barbed wire off and I get it all removed. And he's like, yeah, just check the fur, make sure there's no like huge gashes or any big you know injuries that we should be concerned over. So I rub my fingers through the fur and I just give it a big hug and it just Aww. takes a deep breath. So the best way that I can like describe that is in Jurassic Park when the couple goes there for the first time when there's the triceratops and the guy like hugs it and it takes that deep breath. I did that with a moose oh. to this day. It is still my favorite, my favorite day. Like it was just the best day of my life. Cause it Please tell me somebody day. got a picture of it. Yes. Oh, I do have a picture of me, you know, oh. working with this moose. Um, it definitely is in a scrapbook because it's definitely a highlight of my life. And well, sure. Especially if they're one of your favorite animals. They're one of my favorite animals and it's not an animal you can exactly get close to. Sure. On a regular. So now, did the other moose really, walk off? Yeah, he just ended up kind of disappearing. And then the moose that we tranquilized, we were able to give it the reversal. He walked up, walked away, totally uninjured and totally fine. Uh, so that's just, you know, again, one of my favorite stories to tell, but that's just shows like you just never know what kind of cause you're going to get working on an airfield. Yeah, no, that's a, a crazy experience, but it had to, like you said, just absolutely memorable, something that's going to stick with you forever. And the fact that it's one of your favorite animals makes it resonate with you that much more and stick with you. Have you ever had other close encounters of that magnitude with other animals? Oh, I didn't think of that one. You know, when in a lot, uh, sorry, in Africa, in Africa, definitely a few close encounters. Um, there was a couple cub, a lion cub, sorry, a couple lion cubs that were reported that their mother wasn't around or something and they looked pretty scrawny. They were really skinny and they were, you know, people were getting concerned. So we had to go put out a carcass to just attract them so they could try to get eyes on them. Mm -hmm. And to be one of the, I was one, it was me and the guide got to jump out and everybody else is up in the hide looking for lions while we were out there trying to set this camera up on this carcass that had been there, you know, for an hour already. And it's just, you know, we ended up never seeing the lions, uh -huh. but knowing that they were in the vicinity, that there's some hungry lions around <laughs> and I am right next to their dinner. Like right. that was definitely a, you know, a puckering moment for sure. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. Um, Oh gosh, you know, oh, no. all the raptor species I get to work with, you know, those are all things I get to hand, you know, handle. And if you've ever really, really looked at a raptor's talons, like those, those oh, bad absolutely. boys are nothing to mess with, you know, so you, you're always in the fear of getting talent. You know, we wear welder gloves to protect ourselves, but you know, these birds are mad. Like they're, they're mad at you. So you're always got to be on your guard that they may grab your shirt or grab up your arm, you know, where your glove isn't at. Right. Um, I think the the greatest, one of the other really great experiences I've had was when I was in Kotzebue, I got to go for a ride along with the caribou biologist up there. He's retired now, but at the time he was doing radio telemetry on the caribou, the Northwest Arctic caribou herd. So I got to jump in his um, super cub. So you know, he was, he's the pilot. So he was sitting up front and I was sitting in the seat directly behind him. 
with a box in my hand that was telling us when we were getting close to this caribou herd. So we're flying around the Northwest Arctic, around these mountains, and you know the machine starts to beep, and we're like, "Yep, we're we're close." I think we're I think the caribou are below us, and we dropped to just a couple hundred feet above the ground, and got to just fly above this Northwest caribou herd that was just weaving like a river through the mountains. And we were just flying right over top of them, just seeing every bull, every female, like, and they were all running because obviously like the airplane's kind of spooking them. But I, no joke, it felt like I jumped into a National Geographic film. Oh, I can imagine. That's like, you're, you're getting to experience things that most people will only see on TV. Yes. Yeah. It was definitely a remarkable moment. The the things your eyes have seen are just, it's incredible to me to have that type of experience. And the fact that you get to call this your career, you know, it's a lot of people have a hard time chasing their dreams, but I love that you've put yourself out there and that you have put yourself in a situation to experience things, even, you know, as you were saying, being shy in high school and, and stepping beyond that to find your passion and pursue it the way that you have is very inspirational. Well, folks, we're going to leave you there on a cliffhanger. Join us in two weeks for part two of this podcast. And that concludes this episode of Women of the Wild podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have any questions or would like to check out our website, it is www.womenofthewild.net. We post different events and everything that we've got going on. We would really like to also thank our sponsors, ACC Crappie Sticks, Girls With Guns, Southern Snare, Sawmill Creek Baits and Lures, RMC Custom Calls, Atlantic Coral Enterprise, Blast and Cast Guide Service, Epler Fur, Feather Moon Calls, Shangalaya Safari, Dr. Josh Farr Children's Books, and Shelly Emmer with Dirty Girl Guide Service. Thank you all and hope that you tune in in two weeks for our next episode.